Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17 says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now I won't go into too much depth on each of these first four commands because we're going to be spending a whole Sunday night on each of the Ten Commandments in the near future. But for the sake of summary, the first command that you shall have no other gods before me is a command of exclusivity. There will be no substitutes for God and there will be no sharing of glory between God and some other object of worship. God is like no other and God alone is worthy of the worship that we have to give. So the first commandment is about the exclusive love that we have for God. Second commandment talks about authenticity, that we are to worship God alone and no counterfeit of God. Only God can make a bearer of His image, so it is not permissible for us to make anything that is supposed to bear the image of God. We are those that bear the image of God. Uh, there is no room for idolatry in the worship of the Lord, and so we are to worship Him with authenticity. Thirdly, we are to worship the Lord God with reverence. As He speaks about His name, He speaks about the representation of all that He is. For in uh, the old times, your name meant something. It had a significance in, represented, in, in representation of who you are and what you stood for. So when we speak the name of God, we're to speak it with dignity. We're to speak it in awe and wonder and to keep in mind the fact that He is a holy God and above and different than all that He has made. We respect markers that represent the Lord God, His name being a key one. And then fourthly, we are spoken uh, about regarding the worship of this God. That the worship this, of this God is to be regular and committed. It's to be a disciplined kind of worship. There is a rhythm to worship that God desires for His people. And within that worship of God, there are two kind of cadences. There is work, that we are given dominion as God's people, as He created man and women in His image. He also gave them dominion over the rest of the creation. And so we are to work in accordance with that dominion. It is good for us to work. Uh, the sentiment that is popular in the world today, that we should do everything we can to try to find a way to not have to work, is not in accord with God's command for His people. Work is good for us. And within that same command, to keep the Sabbath day holy, our work is to be for six days, and our rest is to be for one. And the rest that God wants us to have rhythmically and regu regularly um, in worship to Him is a rest that is in accordance with worship. It should be refreshing 
to our hearts. It should bring peace to us to come before the living God and to set the things of the world aside that we might celebrate who he is and that we might focus on and, and adore in wonder the great uniqueness of our God. So that is the first table of the law. Those first four laws are all about how we interact vertically with this God who has created us in his image. The next six commandments are often referred to as the second table of the law. And these represent our love for our neighbor. How do we as the people of God give affection and care towards those who are also made in the image of our Father? And so let's look at verses 12 through 17 as we look at these next six commandments. Verse 12 says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So as bearers of the image of God, man has certain unalienable rights, but God's list of unalienable rights is a little different than what we're so familiar with, with the Bill of Rights uh, that marks the freedoms that American citizens have in this earthly kingdom in which we live. And so when we think about each of those six, again, we won't go into too much detail, uh, but the Fifth commandment tells us that we are to honor the image of God's authority. That chiefly displayed to us in our mother and in our father. We are to, according to the sixth command, we are to honor the image of God's vitality, which is displayed in human life. We are to honor human life by not putting people to death, by not killing them, and stealing the breath that God has put into them. Seventh commandment tells us that we are to honor the image of God's faithfulness, which is displayed in monogamous relationships that God has ordained for men and women to have in the creation, the establishment uh, of families. This is also key to the perpetuation of the human race as God has called human beings to go forth into the world and to multiply and to fill it, as we talked about this morning in our message on the sanctity of life. We are, according to uh, the Eighth Commandment, we are to honor the image of God's dominion, which is on display in humankind in the stewardship of our goods. We are not to steal from one another. We're not to take from someone else what God has blessed them with. The ninth commandment is telling us to honor the image of God's truth as displayed in the testimony of, uh, of truth when we bear witness to one another. We're not to distort reality. We are not to bear a false testimony that would skew a person's understanding of someone else. And then the last commandment of the ten is that we are to honor God's generosity, which is on display in satisfaction through what he provides. We are not to be a covetous people that is constantly looking for some other kind of blessing, which skews the thankfulness that we are to have for what God has blessed us with. So Paul makes a faithful summary of God's commands in a New Testament text. In Romans 13, verses, uh, verse 10, he says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. 
So there is a soul, a spirit to the law, a summary which undergirds all of the Ten Commandments. Without this anchoring cornerstone command, none of the ten can be kept in a satisfactory way. And so we decided tonight to combine uh, the question 46 with question 47. And so we'd like to look at question 47 uh, tonight as well. What is the sum of the Ten Commandments? The sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. You can see how these two questions are intrinsically linked. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 40 says, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you see how these two great commandments are the foundation of the two distinct tables of the law that we examined earlier? And in reality, the Ten Commandments are contained in these two great commandments, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Essentially, those, the great commandment and the second great commandment are teaching us to adhere to the first table of the ten and to the second table of the ten. As the first great commandment is to love the Lord our God, the first table of the law is an expansion on that command. We are given more specific instructions so that we will know how we are to keep the greatest of commandments and to offer that affection and adoration to our Maker. As the second great commandment follows the first and is like it, in kind and in format, we are commanded to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so the last six commandments of the ten comprise the second table of the law, and we see that these instructions are really what we would have others do to us if they truly loved us. And we're going to talk about that golden rule of doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. In just a few moments. These two tables are of different importance. I think a lot of people miss this point. But the first of the two great commandments is clearly first for a reason. It is superior to the second great commandment. You might not have noticed that there is a hierarchy to to the law of God. By that I mean that not all the laws of God are of equal import. James 3.11 probably contributes to people missing this point a lot. If you look at James 3.11 on the screen here, maybe, it says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. We're familiar with that verse, and that verse is really important for us as we try to not um, have partiality towards others. We try to realize that um, there aren't different categories of sinners that we are all desperately in need of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So this verse speaks to the fact that any rebellion is enough of an offense to warrant the punishment of damnation. Even someone who goes their whole life, if they could, managing to never break what we might consider the really big laws, would not by their great efforts deserve to be spared from hell. For Every one of us has broken the law of God to some extent. Even one single lie is a serious offense to God, being as a lie is an assault on the truth. And who is truth? God is truth. So we do not teach, as the Roman Catholics teach, that there is 
some kind of an artificial distinction. The Roman Catholic Church has this duality of the law where they say that there are mortal sins and that there are venial sins. This is not language that you're going to find in the Word of God. You're going to find this in the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. And just for our expansion of knowledge, I want to just go through real quickly what those two categories represent. Mortal sins, sometimes also called cardinal sins in the Roman tradition, uh, are speaking of sins where we are breaking a serious law with full knowledge of what we are doing. Committing a mortal sin would, in the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, result in your immediately being cut off from the grace of God. Without confessing that sin to a priest, death would immediately result in the offender going to hell. Regardless of their confession of faith, regardless of their baptism, the perseverance of the saints is not a doctrine that the Roman Catholics properly believe in. There is a different category of sin in the Roman Catholic Church, which they would call venial sins, which are relatively slight sins, often committed without full awareness or full intention. And the Roman Catholic believes that a venial sin weakens a Christian's bond to the Lord, but is not serious enough to destroy that bond. Failure to confess this sin to a priest before death is said to be a factor in lengthening one's stay in purgatory, some sort of pseudo-heaven where people go and, and repent of sins that they didn't confess to priests. Um, the degree of suffering that happens there is not totally clear to me. But again, this is not a biblical doctrine. It is a doctrine uh, based on tradition and some apocryphal writings. So mortal and venial sin is not a categorization we would embrace as Christians of the Reformation. All sins are an offense to God. And all sins put a person in a position to need the saving grace of Jesus Christ. But functionally, some laws of God do hold a higher priority than others. And the, um, even the, the event that two law, in the event that two laws cannot simultaneously be kept, the Christian must consider which of those two laws carries the most weight in the instruction of Scripture. So, an example of that. Was Jesus ever forced with having to make a decision between breaking one law or the other law? Many accused him of that, right? Jesus was presented with a man who needed healing, and it was the Sabbath. A Sabbath is a day for rest, as we spoke about. This is one of the Ten Commandments. It's uh, in the first table of the law. And so Jesus, in seeing this man in his hurt and in his weakness, had to make a decision. Which of the laws is more important? To love my neighbor and enough to want to heal them or to keep the Sabbath day holy? Well, because law, uh, love for a neighbor is holy itself, Jesus doesn't break the law of God. He follows the, the law of God that means more in that moment. He heals the man who needs to be healed. He had the power to do that, and he did it without reservation. And it was not sin for him to do so. So there is a, a sense of hierarchy to the law. It's not entirely laid out in Scripture what that hierarchy is. But we do see evidence through the Scripture that certain sins are punished more heavily, aren't they? If you look at the Levitical law of the Old Testament, uh, the multitude of commands and regulations that are given to the people of, uh, of the Jews, they were not all said when somebody commits a sin, you just immediately put them to death. Some sins were punishable uh, by death, others were not. 
And under the equality of the law, principle where an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is given, uh, you're not allowed to punish somebody more harshly than you ought to for a crime they committed. So we do see that functionally there is a hierarchy to the law, that some of these laws are more important. We even see that in the, the two greatest laws. For the law of loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength takes precedence over the law to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Which of the two tables is more natural to us? Probably at least the second. For there are many practical ramifications to loving our neighbor, and the love of the self is a bit too natural for us, right? If we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, we naturally love ourselves. We naturally want good for ourselves. So to love other people, we often think, well, if I love this person, then maybe they'll love me back. Maybe I'll get something out of it. Loving God is a bit more abstract. It's the, the benefit of it is not as immediately clear to us. So I think it is more natural for human beings to follow the second table of the law than it is the first. But many groups that call themselves churches today have turned into little more than second table relief organizations where the gospel has been twisted to mean no more than do good to your neighbor, advocate for his rights and his happiness. And all this is done with very good intentions but at the neglect of the greater law of loving the Lord your God. I mean, even Greenpeace, which is a completely secular organization, tries to do good for other people, tries to relieve their suffering and bring uh, relief to them. A church that thinks they have the gospel, but who have put the priority on the second commandment while largely forgetting the first, is not really indeed a church. These are not two equal commandments. The second is subjugated to the first and really is the basis upon which we can hope to accomplish the second table of commandments. From the keeping of the first table of the law flows the power to adhere to the second table of the law. And if we try to do these good things like don't murder, don't lie, uh, do not commit adultery, do not covet, we try to do those things without a, a distinct and primary love for God, then we will find ourselves constantly struggling and warring against our flesh. But when our love and our affection is placed upon God himself, when we love him first and foremost, then we will find that the second table of the law is not nearly as hard to accomplish in a satisfactory way. If you love your neighbor without loving God, how do you fall short? So let's look at 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12, for an explanation of that. The Apostle John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God lo so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So we see first in this passage that love it has a source. It is from God. 
if you are not supplied by God, then you cannot love as you ought. Now, don't get confused here. This does not mean that if your Muslim neighbor loves you, then that means that he has been born of God and knows God. Without being properly rooted in the true God, our capacity to love is bankrupt. We can love in an earthly sense, but we cannot love in the true sense of the word, for we cannot help a person to their best if we cannot help them to God. For every person's best is to know God and to be reconciled to Him. God Himself is love. So if you want to give love to someone, you have to be able to give them God. Verse 10 talks about how even the first table of the law comes under the greater truth that God first loved us. So even though we are now entering into this section, we are speaking about Christian ethics and we're talking about our capacity to follow God's law and to obey Him. All of that starts with God first loving us when we did not yet love Him. Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So 1 John 4 reminds us of the fact that our capacity to love really starts with God loving us out of our sin and making us new. The evidence that God is actually in us is this. If we are new in Christ, then we will love one another with the kind of love that we have been loved by God. So you can see how the first table of the law is foundational to the second table of the law, right? It's very difficult for us to even have a hope of loving our neighbor properly and in a, in a holy way if our affections are not firmly rooted in the love of God for us. So let me ask you this question, especially with ethics on the table. Is loving God our duty or is it our delight? It is, some, is it something that we must do or is it something that we desire to do? And I would say that the answer to that question is Yes, it is certainly our duty to love God. We owe Him love. If you look at Joshua 23, 11, Scripture says, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. It is something we must do. If we do not love the Lord our God, we are in error and we are in danger. Now, our Arminian friends might say, No, it is not our duty to love God. Our or God's love is forced upon us if it's just a duty. It must be our delight to love God. We must choose to love God. If it is forced upon us, then it is not truly love. And I can understand to a degree where this sentiment comes from, although I do not agree with it. I really enjoy working on cars. That's one of my favorite hobbies. I love to get out in the garage. And when I have some spare time to get out there and try to work on tuning a carburetor or trying to get a suspension dialed in just right. That's something that I really enjoy. I love the challenge. I love the satisfaction of figuring out a problem and solving it. I love improving a machine and making a design better. But for a time, as I was studying in seminary, I was also working a couple of side jobs to make ends meet. And one of those jobs was I went in and clocked in and out was a mechanic most days of the week. And I did not really enjoy working on cars very much anymore when I had to do it, when it became my duty to work on cars because I had to do it. 
So I had to go and clean the grease out from beneath my fingernails every day, like it or not. I had to bust my knuckles up and hit my head and get grit in my eyes. It was uncomfortable and it got on my nerves after a while. And I stopped enjoying it for a time. I no longer wanted to work on my own cars even because I had no choice but to have to work on other cars all the time. So it did take the fun out of it when it was no longer my delight, but it was only my duty. So I can see why somebody could be confused in thinking that Love of God must be our delight and not our duty. But that's not exactly how it works with the Lord. And here's why. Is it our duty to love God? Yes. But for those whom God has elected, not only does he save us, but he gives us a new heart, a heart that now longs to love him in ways that we never longed to love the Lord before. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36 in the Old Testament. This is not going to be on the screen, so you're going to want to open up your scripture for this one. This pivotal chapter in Ezekiel chapter 36 is a prophetic description of the new covenant in which we now live. So after a time of of exile, Israel, God's chosen people, had been disobedient to God consistently. And through their stubborn rebellion, God had to chastise his people. Though many of them were not believing in the covenant, they were not living according to it, there was always a remnant of the people that loved the Lord God. And nevertheless, because of the nation's disobedience, there needed to be a chastisement. And so God took away the blessing that Judah had of autonomy and caused them to be exiled and sent out from the land of blessing. And so Ezekiel 36 is in some ways, comforting their exiled hearts. And he says here in verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. So we see some first table violations there, right? We see that the people of Israel have not honored the great name of God. They are not to take that name in vain. They're not to enter into a covenant lightly with the Lord. And so there are some implications uh, to their disobedience. Verse 23, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nation and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will clean you. This is some 500 years before Christ, but this is looking forward to what Jesus would accomplish. Verse 26, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And so this new heart that God gives to us is a heart that can and must do What our old heart, defiled by the fall of Adam, was incapable of doing. It can love the Lord with heart, with mind, with strength, with soul. And this new heart longs to do that. 
It's something that mechanical work could never do for me. Mechanic work is something I enjoy, but it does not give me a new heart. It does not transform me from the inside out. But God's election of my soul has made me a new creature. So that now this duty to love the Lord, which I could never keep before, is something that I can keep now. I can love the Lord uh, my God. In fact, it is my greatest joy to love Him and to pursue Him and to care for Him above other things. And I hurt myself when I let my affections for other things get in the way from my affections of this God. When I allow second table things to become more important to me than first table things. And so when Proverbs 8.17 says, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. The writer of Proverbs is actually speaking of the elect of God. The remnant of Israel, the true Israel of today. Those who love God are the ones who have been loved by Him and have been given a new heart with which to love the one who saved them. And there is great reward in store for those who are given this new heart which can and will love the Lord God. Paul, quoting Isaiah 64, verse 4 says in 1 Corinthians 2, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So I can't describe to you what's in store if you love the Lord God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, if you truly follow after Christ. But I can tell you that it's beyond your imagination. That it is, it is beyond description. Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21 gives us a little more insight into this. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God has put this new heart into believers that we might obediently love Him. But, what is, but that does not mean that we cannot learn to love Him more. And so to conclude tonight, we're going to look at a kind of shotgun style at some of the ways Scripture describes how we are to love God and fulfill the first table of the law. And then we're going to do the same to the second table of the law as well. Look at some of the Scriptures that really instruct us on the ways, the very practical means by which we love one another. And so how are we to love God? We are to love Him in our thought. Psalm 104.34 says, May my meditation be pleasing to Him, for I rejoice in the Lord. And so one of the ways that we give love to our Father is by letting our mind rest on who He is and what He desires. We meditate in the Word of God. We, we let the thoughts that God has revealed to us of Himself, we let them fill our, our mind to the point where other things of the world seem to drift away for a time and we're able to just really think about who God is and why He is commanded to be our first and greatest love. We love Him in our meditations. We love Him in our contemplations. I know often we spend time just imagining what life would be like, but we should spend time also just imagining the glories of God, what we will experience when we get to heaven and, 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 and how God might use us in this life to bring glory to His own name. So we are to think about the Lord, our God. We are to love Him 
passionately with our minds. If God has given you a great mind that can think deeply, that can uh, grasp concepts that are abstract and very difficult to synthesize, then use that mind to think theologically about your God. If God has given you a very simple mind that just appreciates things on the surface for what they are, then love the beauty of your God and know Him as best you can. Pour whatever energy and effort you have mentally into thinking about this God and knowing Him the best you can. So we are to love Him with our minds. We are to also love Him in our desires. Psalm 63 verses 1 through 2 says, O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You. As in a dry and a weary land, where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Now, every Christian is going to go through times when that passionate desire for the Lord is not as fervent as perhaps it was before. And in those times, I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, to go back to the testimony of Scripture and to do what we talked about just a second ago, to think upon God to meditate upon the glory and the unique holiness of the God that we have come to serve. I find that when our love grows cold to the Lord, it's when we've not been thinking about the Lord. We've not been loving Him with our minds. We have allowed our minds to settle on the lesser things of this earth. And so the grandeur and the uniqueness of God has not been before our eyes. So our love for God increases as we think more deeply about our God. And so these these instructions go hand in hand with us. We are to love the Lord in our presence. James 4.8 says, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so, so there should be a presence in which we are giving the most precious resource we have, which is our time. Where we're giving that time over to the Lord. We're not just constantly trying to shove a little bit of God into the leftover cracks of our schedule, but we are setting apart portions of our day where we say, I'm intentionally going to seek the Lord during this time. I'm going to meditate on His Word. I'm going to spend time in prayer to Him, seeking His face, to be blessed to know that He is my God, and to bring my needs and requests before Him, as we did before we started this exposition of the Baptist Catechism. We are to love Him in our presence and draw near to Him. And we know that God is within us, so there is not a time when God is not near to us, right? But when we draw near to the Lord, when we acknowledge Him and enjoy Him more intentionally, then the presence of God is more, made more obvious to us, and we can rejoice more greatly in it. So we're to love the Lord God in our presence. We're to love Him in our obedience. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Amen. So this is a reflection on that concept that we learned about in Ezekiel 36, that the, the change that God brings about in the life of a believer is a brand new heart, a heart that makes the law of God, which used to condemn us, which used to crush us because it was a set of laws too perfect for us to ever keep. Now the law of God shows us the beauty of Christ and His perfection in fulfilling the law and gives us a great appreciation for Him to the degree that we can obey the law of God, grateful that He obeyed the law for us. 
And so when we fall short of it, we are perfect in the law, we can rejoice that Jesus was perfect in our place and that his righteousness has been imputed to us so that when Christ looks upon us, he doesn't see our failures and our stumblings. He doesn't see our deep minus. He sees Christ's A+. He sees the righteousness of God in us. And so we are to love him in our obedience and then we're to rejoice in that for these are not burdensome to us when we are walking in the Spirit. We are to love the Lord our God by sharing in the rejection of evil. And, uh, and this has been on my heart as I prepared this week to preach about the horrors of abortion and the lies that fuel that industry this morning. Psalm 139 verses 19 through 21. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. To love one thing is, in a sense, to reject another. We cannot love what is good and love what is wicked at the same time. God does not love that which is wicked. And so there will be, by necessity, an ordering in our lives, a priority, where we love God to such an extent that, that we look upon rebellion against God with disdain. That is appropriate, and it is one of the ways by which we love our God. We are not to love God irrationally or recklessly. Philippians 1 verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, how? With knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. So we are to love what God loves, and that means we have to think. We have to think carefully. We have to acquire knowledge, and we have to learn to have discernment so that we don't end up loving things that God detests. We are to say amen to what Christ has instructed us to say amen to. And so that means we need to love him with our knowledge and with our discernment. We are to love him sincerely. Ephesians 6 verse 24 says, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So a sincere love is a love that is not easily shaken. It is a love that is, is not corrupted by the world's definition of love, which is ultimately always going to trend towards self-service in love. We are to love the Lord God for who He is with a sincere appreciation and gratitude for Him. Not just for what He can give to us, not just for the hell that He spared us from, not just for the heaven that awaits us, but loving Him sincerely for who He is, for the holiness with which no other uh, being um, uh, can rival. We are to love Him supremely. Matthew 10 verse 37 says, Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This passage of scripture has no doubt cut to the heart of many who are exploring this Jesus that we worship. And many who would say that, well, I don't love anything as much as my children. I don't love anything as much as my mother or my father. I don't love anything as much as my spouse. When they are faced with the reality that Christ alone is supreme and must be supreme, that is often a shocking truth to them. 
Now realize that this is the same God who commands us in the second table of the law to honor our mother and our father, right? So God is not telling us to hate our mother and father here or to disregard the place that God has made for them in our lives. But what he is saying very distinctly here is that our love for the Lord God must be supreme. So first table commitment must come before second table commitment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength precedes our love for others. And I can tell you from experience, friends, I have tried to love people on my own power before. And it does not work. If you are not loving the Lord first, then you're not properly equipped to love others with the love they need from you. But when you do love God first, when you put the priority on Christ, when you order your life around the Savior, then you will find that the quality of love that you have to give to others around you increases by several fold. You are now much more able to be stable for them. You're much more able to be compassionate and merciful and patient to them because your eyes are fixed on a God who's merciful and compassionate to you. You're much more able to be honest and open with them and to, to lead them to the truth, which is what they need because your affections are fixed on truth itself, on the true and living God. So we are to love the Lord supremely above all other loves. We are to love him consistently. Jude 21 says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So our love for God should not just be something that we, uh, we enjoy when it overcomes us like a wave and it recedes and we find our happiness and satisfaction in other things until those dry up, which they inevitably do, and then we look again for the love of the Lord. Now, our love for God should be a consistent seeking after Jesus Christ and finding our satisfaction and contentment in Him for He truly is the only thing that is enough for us. So these are some of the many ways that we are to love our God, but our love is not to be confined to God. Though our love for Him is supreme, it is not exclusive. We are to love others as well. There is a second table to the law. So this is no world of two scenario where you just go off into the wilderness like a monk and love God for the rest of your life and forget that the rest of the world exists. In fact, as we love God more fully and more truly for who He is and for what He desires, then we'll not be able to keep from loving what He, the object of our desires, loves Himself. And what does He love? He loves His people. He loves His bride. So how do we love our neighbor? How do we love other people around us? Is it different than our love for God? Yes, it is. There's some uniqueness to it, but it is informed in many ways and empowered by our love for God. So let's look at what the scripture says about how we love our neighbors. And again, this is not exhaustive, but this is to give us a, a firm idea of what it means to keep the second table of the law. We love others by seeking their good. Philippians 2 verses 2 through 4. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So think about how the second table of the law is so tied in with that instruction that Paul just gave the church in Philippi. When we don't murder other people, we're thinking of their lives as holy as our life is. We're considering that they need vitality, that we, we have no right to take away what God has given to them. When we refuse to covet what other people have, then we learn to rejoice 
for what others have been blessed with. Even if God has not in his sovereignty determined to give the same thing to us. We can be happy for what other people have, even if we would have liked to have gotten that ourselves and didn't. We can rejoice that God has been generous to another. We seek the good of others uh, by caring for the needs of others, like our mother and our fathers. We, we respect them. We are grateful for them. We look after them when they grow older. We don't just seek our own good and our own freedom and our own uh, uh, latitude. We're grateful for the fact that God has put others in our lives. And sometimes, even if it costs us something dearly, we put our needs to the side and care for their needs because God has cared for our needs. So we seek the good of others. We also express compassion to them. Job 6.14, He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. And that's spoken by a man whose friends withheld some great kindness from him. As you know the story of Job, he suffered great loss. The Lord allowed him to go through a terrible time of trial and testing. And those who were closest to him, instead of comforting him and pointing him to the grace and the mercy of God, instead, they, they tried to tear him down and make him confess some hidden sin that, in their minds, must have been the root of his misfortune. And so Job knows from the bottom of his heart how important it is for people to have kindness to one another. And so we express love to one another when we have compassion on the needs, when we Weep with those who weep, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. We love our neighbor by supplying their needs. And this is kind of a lengthy passage, but I think it, it in so many ways, gives us a, a kaleidoscope picture of what it means to meet the needs of others. Job says, If I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the fatherless has not eaten of it. For from my youth the fatherless grew up with me, as with a father. And from my mother's womb, I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw him, I saw my help in the gate, and then let then let my shoulder break, uh, my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder, and let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God. I could not have faced his majesty. Now I wish I had the heart that Job describes here when he sincerely says, I love to help those who are in need. And think of the, the myriad of ways that he is doing that. Are we eager to care for the needs of those who are hurting around us? That is one of the ways that we love them according to the second table of the law of God. By looking at their lives paying attention to their needs and thinking of the best and most helpful way that we might show up and, and be present for them. That doesn't always mean we, we give them exactly what they want because sometimes a person needs wisdom. Sometimes a person needs guidance. We have to be wise in these things. But those who love others are those who are willing to meet their needs when God has given them the ability to do that. We love others and this might seem counterintuitive, but we, other, we love others by calling out their sin. Leviticus 19.17 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Now, this kind of has some context to it. In Leviticus, he's talking about if your neighbor sins against you, what is the right thing to do to your neighbor? The right thing to do is to go and communicate that with him. To go and talk to them about the wrong that they did. Try to seek some sort of resolution. 
Let them know that their actions have hurt you or have done you harm. And then go and try to work things out with them so that there can be peace again between you and your neighbor. I think we mistakenly think that the best way to deal with other people sinning against us is just let love cover it, push it deep down and forget that it ever happened. And then we end up letting that build up in our hearts. Sometimes we can just let love cover it. But other times if an offense is repeated again and again, what it does is it ends up hardening us to that neighbor and it creates a fissure in the bond of love that we have with our friend or with our neighbor. And so the loving thing to do is to be honest and forthright and to go forward with a kind and patient heart and express your desire for that person to repent of their sin. And often we find that, that our offense was actually due to a miscommunication or misunderstanding and resolution can come without even repentance. But there are times when sin must be named as sin. And when we love people, we're willing to call sin what it is so that they can repent and bring that to the Lord and so that they can be refined and sanctified in holiness as they try uh, to, to more accurately obey the command of God themselves. We love other people by praying for them. We should pray for our neighbors. And so James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. And so thank you for being here in time to, to pray for the needs of the church. And I hope that the things that we speak of together as a body of Christ are not just things that you think of only on a Sunday evening, but I pray that you take those things home with you. Maybe you write them down or maybe you make a couple notes in your phone, but I pray these are things that you're lifting up before the Lord in your own personal times of devotion as you go through the week because this is the one of the ways that we express love to our friends by advocating before the throne of God for our neighbor and for those whom we share life with. We are to love our neighbor in obedience to the second table of the law by laying our life down for them. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that He, Christ, laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So being blessed by the sacrificial willingness of Jesus to hurt on our behalf, we should be willing to incur hardship and pain for those who are near to us. And that's really where love, love uh, becomes real, where rubber meets the road for the Christian. Are we willing to love only when it is convenient and easy for us? I, I'm, I'm, it's very easy for me to give the, the rest of my meal to that homeless person because I'm full and I can't eat any more of it. And it would just be an inconvenience for me to take that home and put it in the refrigerator and then throw it away three days later because who eats leftovers, right? It'd be really easy for me to just give that portion to a homeless person, but it might cost me some time. It might cost me some, like surfing on my phone as I eat, if I invite that man to come and have a meal with me. And over the course of sharing that meal with them, I, I ask them about their life and I get to know them. And I start to talk to them about the joy that Christ has been to me and how until we know Christ, we cannot have true peace and true, and, and, and true uh, happiness in this life. So, Think about the ways that, that we love one another. Is it very easy to love our neighbor? Sometimes it is. But sometimes it, it hurts us to love. Love is a risky endeavor. And the Christian must be willing to take that risk and, and to pay that price. Uh, for we would never pay the price to the degree that Christ has already paid it for us. That's not something that we could ever match. His love is so superior in all ways. Uh, but we can at least look at ways that we might in the 
spirit and in the uh, in admiration of the love and the sacrifice that God has made for us that we might sacrifice for one another. As Christ loved us, so we should love one another. So there's a, a, a way by which we express our love. In addition for it being sacrificial, sacrificial love, Ephesians 5, 2 says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Are we willing to spend our time on our knees for our brothers and sisters in prayer? You know, when we know someone's going through it, do we turn the TV off? Do we, do we get down and focus? We, we shut the shutters and let the rest of the world be what it is while we seek the Lord God for our friend? Are we willing to give of what we have to meet their need financially? Are we willing to use the giftings and the, and the talents that God has given to us to help that individual out? We are to love sacrificially. 1 Peter 4.8 teaches us that we're to love our neighbor supremely with the exception of Christ. Look what 1 Peter 4.8 says. It says, above all. You know, there's a priority given in there, right? Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So Christ is always first to us. But having met the need to love Christ first and to have him be priority in our lives... We shouldn't allow anything else to be priority over our love for our brothers. That should be a close second to loving the Lord God. That we should be willing to care for, especially the family of God, but that we should even be willing to care for those who are not yet named brothers. That we are to be willing to sacrifice for them and to show them the love of Christ as it was displayed to us even while we were yet sinners. And then we are to love the Lord God consistently. Uh, Hebrews 13.1 is our last verse tonight. Let brotherly love continue. Um, we are to not grow tired and weary of doing good, but we are to love the Lord God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves day after day until the Lord returns and gives us an even greater capacity to love one another into eternity. So there is much more to be said about the Ten Commandments. And in the next weeks to come, we will expand more on this topic. But I'm grateful that you came together tonight so that we can get an introduction to this and we can get a basic layout of the land uh, that will help us, I think, as we move forward into the exposition of each of the commands one by one. Are there any uh, questions that we have about the teaching tonight? Some time for discussion. Who is your neighbor? Jeff, I'll let you answer that question because I know you know the answer to it. I've done enough talking tonight. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So when you ask, when you ask who is my neighbor as I think it was a Pharisee who asked Jesus to clarify when he shared the parable of the Good Samaritan. The idea there is, who qualifies? Who, do, who am I expected to help? And uh, Jesus kind of flipped the understanding around a little bit and challenged that man to think neighborly. He says, who was a neighbor to the one who was beaten on the road and needed help? It wasn't the priest. It wasn't the holy uh, Levite. 
It was this Samaritan. He chose to be a neighbor to that man who was in need of a neighbor. So our, our mindset and our attitude should be like that, that we should be on the lookout for someone who needs a neighbor. And we should be a neighbor to them no matter where we live. Uh, we should care for their needs the best we can and, and take every opportunity to glorify the name of Christ as we bear the name of Christian and serve another human individual who may be in a, in a position uh, of compromise and, and might be in need of help. I think the reason I asked that was uh, I think in Western culture we tend to assume that our neighbor is just people on either side of us or across the street who we live next to. Yeah, yeah. That's you know what? In reading the, the greater instruction of the New Testament, there, there are more priorities. We talked tonight about how Christ is our supreme love and loving others is uh, a second to that. But we also see a consistent testimony whereby the church is a higher priority to us than a stranger is. That because we have been given a family and families are important to God, this family of Christ should be where our attention and focus goes first. And then uh, it should not be exclusively for our church, but then we should be thinking about the church, the greater church throughout the world. And then we should be thinking beyond the borders of the church and think of those who may be elect but not yet regenerated. That we might be looking to those who are lost to give them care and love and treat them with the kind of kindness and mercy that God has treated us with. So there are definitely layers to our responsibility in love. Um, uh, but yeah, that, I think that that what you said really rings true, that we should be looking for ways to be neighbors to other people. I'd like to clarify the uh, part about you know, the first table, second table, because when you think about the Shema, you know, in the summary of the law too, when it's the prayer is you know, to love God and to love your neighbor, um, of course there's an order, right? Mm-hmm. But then when we think about it, there's not really a distinction in the sense that we can't hate our neighbors of God, right? right? So when you read the uh, Job passage, it really kind of gelled all that together. Yeah. So I kind of I got what you were saying, and then uh, I think John had in mind when he said, uh, "If someone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen?" I think he was quoting. Yeah, I think he did have Leviticus 19 in mind. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there's no such thing as a a four commandment guy, right? You can't just say I'm gonna I'm gonna be a first table dude, but I'm not really big on loving other people. So I'm just gonna focus on loving the Lord. And that's one of the problems I have with some of the monastic movements that have happened over time, is where people have just said, in the interest of loving God better, I'm gonna cut myself off from the world and really just devote myself to the love, the vertical love of my father. And I think even Calvin experienced some of that to a degree because he was going to move on from Geneva, didn't have any intentions of staying there. And they really wanted him to stay and to minister. And uh, which one of his friends was it, Paul, who challenged him? And was it, well, Rick, was it uh, a Beza? No. I can't remember exactly which one, but he, he basically laid the, the guilt trip down thick <laughs> and did not allow him to just go and, you know, cordon himself off and be a first table of the law guy and simply love his studies and do his reading and his writing to the detriment of the church. He needed, he had the gifting to be pastoral. And so he was challenged to stay and to preach and to be a shepherd to the people. And wow, how we've all been blessed that the Lord convicted his heart to do that. Uh, because really he needed to follow all 10. And, and we all need to think as the, of the 10 as a unit, really. 
Um, there's a reason why every time that God is asked what's the greatest commandment, he always talks about both, right? The first and the second. He doesn't leave the second off, but he always keeps the order the same as well. So there's a value in recognizing the priority of Christ, but there's also a value, as you said, in realizing those two are, are part and parcel of the same. You can't really do one without the other. William Farrell. William Farrell. The household of God, yeah. So there's a priority there to the elect of God. Sure. Church, you know, yeah, absolutely. It was a difficult one I, I had. Well, not really difficult, but maybe a clarity and then a, a question I just wanted you to answer. Um, so on the Sabbath part, um, can you clarify when you said that the one law and the other about Jesus keeping? Yes, yeah, so... Jesus is in a context where he is a good Jew, so he doesn't work on the Sabbath. He's not trying to go out and, and, uh, and violate the law fragrantly for no reason. Um, and yet there's an opportunity for him to do what he knows others will perceive as work and heal this man. And so he uses it as an opportunity really to question the heart of those who would criticize him these people who saw the law not really as a way to express love in a format that is honoring to God, but really saw the law instead as a way to prove themselves to be holier than other people. And so he challenges them and asks them, who was made for, for what? Was man made for the Sabbath or was the Sabbath made for man? And, and they're shocked by that. And essentially what he's saying is, look, God gave us these laws for the good of our hearts and to help us to be more loving so that we might bear his image better. And so uh, he is, in a sense, violating the Sabbath commandment because to love his neighbor was more important in that moment. And in order to love his neighbor well, he needed to heal him because he had the means to do so. And in order to do that, he had to put aside, he had to subjugate the Sabbath command to that greater law of love. And he did that. So... I've heard other people say, well, Jesus was a rebel. He was a lawbreaker. He broke the, the, the Sabbath command. But there was no sin in Christ. So there is, there is no, there's no true breaking of the law. There's a keeping of the higher law there. Does that clarify things a little bit? Yeah, when he says it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, yeah. right? So they, were, they had a twisted understanding of what the Sabbath keeping actually was when he said the priests profane yeah. the Sabbath and are blameless when they went in there and, you know, right. in the Bible throw the high priest and Yeah, well, I definitely think you have primary and secondary uh, effects of sin. And every one of us is going to be beholden to the primary effects of sin. In other words, we're going to break the law of God and we're going to experience uh, the negative ramifications of that. Um, but there is also a reality of the fact that sometimes there is generational sin. There is sin that has abounded in our families for generations. And God makes it clear there that that's going to have an impact. It's going to have a far-reaching uh, effect on those who flow out of that tradition of sin. It doesn't mean that they're going to be left behind. I mean, God's elect are God's elect. So God can save people out of those generations as well. 
but when we allow sin to have a, a great rooting, and I think we're going to see that in the next couple of generations to come. We've let things slip so far in this nation where there's, there's just been such a celebration of sin and a justification of it. There's been even a, you know, a, a legal protection and sanction for heinous sin in our nation that you're going to have a mindset amongst the generation to come that's going to be very difficult to root out uh, and to change. And so uh, there is a sense in which neglect uh, of the good can have long-lasting effects generationally. And I think that's really what the Lord is talking about there. Um, And and some of you have maybe experienced this when you grew up in a family where there's just a history of adultery in the family. There's a history of alcohol or drug abuse in the family. And it's hurt everybody. Even people who never touched alcohol or drugs, even those who never dabbled in adultery can feel the pain of what happened in that person that came before them, sin. And so in a sense, because sin must be punished and it has its negative uh, effects, we have to feel the sting of that. We live in a fallen world. We're not insulated from it just because those aren't sins that we've committed. And because of our connection to our families, we feel that greater when our families are the ones that are committing that, that, that sin and that calamity comes upon us in a sense as well. But each man is responsible for their own sin before the Lord God. And each man who calls upon the name of the Lord, their sins will be wiped away. There will be no one who uh, would have been elect except for their grandpa was such a sinner. They, they weren't worthy for the kingdom of heaven. You know, that's, that's not a scenario that, that could ever happen. God will call who he calls. So it makes the gospel so essential. I mean, the yeah. only way those generational curses are broken is through the gospel. On the tree, right? That's right. In the, uh, the opening of the first question, when you were mentioning the different command, uh, two tables of the commandments, that you said something about the second table that was interesting and compelling that I hadn't heard before really thought about. You were framing all of the six commandments almost like in light of characteristics of God. Yeah, this image. Yeah, so would you think maybe that those are the most essential characters? I know we talked before about like, what are the definite characteristics or attributes about God? I wouldn't go so far as to call them the most essential or, or better in any way. I think that there are other aspects of God's character and nature which are on display in, in different laws that come, like even in the Levitical laws uh, and some of his uniqueness and, uh, and his purity. Um, but I would say that those are some fundamental aspects of who he is, his his vitality, his faithfulness, his authority, um, his dominion, his truth. I think those, those are really essential to knowing who God is. And, um, of course, every aspect and element of God is worth our study and our, our contemplation. But I thought it was just remarkable to look at the table, the second table, and to see those pictures, especially when you consider why is it, I think it all rooted for me in uh, Genesis 9, 6, where it's talking about how you shall not murder because man is made in the image of God. So there, there's a reason behind uh, these things being wrong. And so it, maybe contemplate um, if the image of God is, is violated in murdering somebody, how so? What part of the image of God is, is uh, put asunder in that? And then I extended that to the other attributes, and it seemed to really have place for each one of them. So uh, there's, there's probably... Um, there's probably some very essential elements that are not represented here, I'm sure. I mean, I'm just trying to think of a couple off the top of my head. I don't really... I mean, like, his, his unchanging nature is not really on display there, but I don't know that man can bear that real well because we're such transitional people, you know? Yeah. 
but yeah, it's, it's something that's it's interesting to think about and, and to spend some time in, in prayer on. Anybody else? All right, friends, it's great to worship with you and to grow alongside you. So thank you for coming out tonight. And uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your mercies. And we pray, God, that we would not fall into the, the trap of thinking that the law is somehow our enemy, but that we would realize as redeemed believers in Christ that the law uh, now becomes a picture of your beauty and your goodness and that it is, it is a helper to us. It is, it's not a taskmaster anymore. We've been set free from the obligations of the law since Christ has fulfilled it all, but the law is still very important to us. And we want to honor you by keeping your commandments. That's how we show you love. And so I pray, God, that you would make us more a loving people by making us more obedient uh, to these two tables. We thank you for your grace and mercy as we know we don't keep them perfectly. We're grateful, God, that there is no earthly priest we must go to when we fail these things, but that we have the high priest, Jesus, who is ever our mediator before the throne. And so, Lord God, teach us and grow us and give us a love for what matters most and help our loves be in proper order and priority. And we pray this all in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.